talking about uh, uh, dealing with uh, wrongs that have been done with evil, yeah, with, with evil, mm-hmm. and how um, how often we're told that. Um, how did you say it just now? How people? Well, I will... think I think that you know there are two reactions that you know the the typical sort of friends of Job reaction is to say, well. This wasn't really evil, and and if it was, it's your fault, and you know you need to, or and to not be able to name the situation for what it is, right. and of course by doing that, the person saying that does not have to empathize, does not have to bear your your pain with you, and and what's being imagined, I think, I, I think our own tendency when something bad happens to us or evil happens to us is to be pretend like we're impervious to it. Oh, this thing can't touch me because I'm like God, you know? Well, no, that being human means that, and being vulnerable to other humans means these people can get you by the throat and throttle you to death in the name of Jesus. And the proper response is not to say, Oh, thank you. Uh, I need a good throttling. I needed to lose my my finances and and have you attack me personally and uh, you know abuse my family and my wife and uh, no the the proper response is to say what you what you've done is evil and to name this this thing to name this idol and and only then I think does our Christianity kick in. If our Christianity is such that we cannot even name evil, if we can't even recognize it, either in our own lives or in the lives of others, then our Christianity just becomes complicit in the problem. It just becomes itself part of the problem. Yeah. Well, there's a there's two or three things there that I think, uh, well, there, uh, 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 you and I speak the same language, especially about suffering. and and evil and and what what it means what a christian response is to one of the things that struck out you know one of the things that you said is um we we have this tendency to think oh we're like god we're untouched by evil part of that i think is rooted in this view of god that says god is untouched by evil Uh, the, the message of the cross part of the message of the cross in an atonement theology that is i what i would call uh, New Testament <laughs> is that Jesus is uh, is identifying is God identifying with suffering on the cross that no that this is what God looks like that our evil does affect God even God is touched by evil even right. God is impacted. Jesus really got, the evil guys really got their hands on him and did their thing to him. Now, so what I shock us, you know, absolutely. What I've always done, especially since my, and, and I should mention that part of the, the goal of this conversation was to, to talk a little bit about Brad Jerzak and Brad Jerzak's identification idea about atonement. And this all really barks up my tree uh, because I've been very influenced by Jerzak. But um, uh, run down, run down identification for us. 
Uh, let me get there. And uh, 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 well, uh, a moment ago, I had okay. a I had a thought that uh, before I mentioned Jerzak that just ran away from me. Must be all the uh, must be all the great conversation that's happening. Um, Jerzak, okay, what what Jerzak is doing? Uh, Brad Jerzak uh, is a, I believe he's in Canada. Um, He's um, written uh, several books. I think the most notable that he's uh, produced is a book called Stricken by God. It's got a question mark. Now, uh, Stricken by God, he's actually a co-editor with uh, Michael Harden. Um, And there are many authors, and they run the gamut, some very – some are Mennonites, some are Church of England. You've got N.T. Wright. You've got Catholic scholars. You've got classically liberal scholars. Marcus Borg is an editor. You've got scholars that probably are what you would consider far more conservative. Um, what all of them are doing is presenting an alternative to the old favorite uh, uh, penal substitutionary atonement. And, um, you know, very simply, um, uh, Jerzak's book, Jerzak's chapter is the first chapter of this book. And he's written other books, too. He's got a lot of material online. If you're interested in, in some interesting videos and interesting podcasts, Brad Jerzak, J-E-R-S-A-K. Um, he has another book. I think it's called A More Beautiful Kingdom, A More Christ-like God. Uh, that came out in one of the two of the chapters he deals with suffering. Uh, but um, what Jerzak uh, does, he presents a view of of the atonement. I should say that the the subtitle of Stricken by God is called Nonviolent Identification and the Victory of Christ. So one of the things not Stricken by God deals with is Christus Victor. Um, and there are several authors that, uh, notably uh, N.T. Wright, um, that are dealing with Christus Victor and really working out Christus Victor atonement theology. What Jerzak really presents, and I think he's the, the only one I've really seen that articulates it this way, is a theory that he refers to as identification. So that on the cross, and here's what, and, and here's, this is a very important distinction. What Jesus is doing on the cross uh, is not that he does this so that you don't have to. That he bears some burden that God, some, some uh, punishment that's coming your way that God has to do. In fact, Jesus never says, if you ever, I mean, think about it this way, if, if, if God really needed to punish you, then and Jesus was going to stand in for that, then why didn't Jesus say to his disciples, "Okay, look, you've got this. You've you've been doing these these uh, sacrifices on the altar in the temple for centuries. Take me over to the altar, slip, tie my hands and feet, slit my throat, uh, set me on fire, and I will be that final sacrifice for you." Why didn't Jesus do that? Well, because over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God says, I hate human sacrifice. Do not ever do that. Uh He hates human sacrifice. Well, Jesus is a human. Uh So why all of a sudden? Oh, okay, but now I need a human sacrifice. 
I can't be satisfied unless I gave a human sacrifice. I'm God, and we need to kill my son. Jesus never says that, but what he does say is, I'm going to be turned over to evil people, and they're going to kill me. The Son of Man must be turned over to evil people. It is evil people. And so what Jerzak does, Jerzak, he, he looks at the, the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 52 and 53. He says, look, the, you notice what Isaiah says about that suffering servant passage. We thought he was stricken by God, but he was punished for what? Our suffering. Mm. He says it wasn't. Who thought he was stricken by God? We thought he was stricken by God. But mm. now there is some tension. You know, it was God's will that he would be crushed. But does that mean it's God God had to have him crushed to forgive us? Or does that mean that it was God's will that he would suffer at the hands of humans? Who so, in the process claim they're doing the work of God. That claim they're doing the work of God. And so if we buy Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, in the past God spoke to us through the fathers and the prophets different times and in different ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he also created the universe. The Son is the exact representation of his being and the radiance of his glory. This, and what I mean, that says clear that. The Son represents God better than the Old Testament. The Son is the fulfillment. He is showing us how to read the Old Testament. This is what God looks like. This is a central idea of Jerzak. That what is happening on the cross is not God, Jesus standing in, in front of us, for, uh, in front of God for us. Instead, Jesus is God standing in for us against ourselves. Mm. Jesus is God identifying with the suffering that our evil creates. Mm. And he identifies with that suffering and defeats it in his resurrection and then calls us. And there's a wonderful chapter. If you read nothing else in the book stricken by God, read Britta Miko's chapter. It's called Die With Me. It's about Britomico's uh, reflection on watching a mass murderer uh, and and dealing with the fact that she's got to forgive. She is called to forgive and find a way to forgive this person and how much she hates him. And trust me, I, when I say she hates inside, I hate too. I have hate for people that do evil, um, which if I'm going to be honest, then I have to hate me too. But that hate is there, and that anger is always there. I feel angry, and she has to stop and say, did I not think that dying with Christ was going to be the worst thing that ever happened to me? Because now I'm stuck here. If, if I say I have to identify with the person that suffered, then I ha- and, and I can't forgive this person, then I have to reject Jesus who suffered. Mm-hmm. And Jesus suffered and said, Father, forgive them. So I can stand with this person in my hatred of the – I can stand with the victim in my hatred of the uh, uh, of the perpetrator, 
and think that hating the perpetrator stands with the victim. But if I hate the perpetrator, then I'm denying the victim that is Christ. Because Jesus identifies with the victim. He identifies with the criminal. He identifies with the murderer. He identifies with everyone who suffers. Uh He defeats that in his resurrection. And then what does he call us to do? Bredemico says it. He doesn't die for us so that we don't have to. He dies and says, and this is the title of her essay, come die with me. Come with me to the cross. So that being saved then is identifying with the cross of Christ so that we might also, and this comes, I think, right out of Romans 8 where Paul says we we will identify in his resurrection if and when we have identified with him in his suffering. And that's when Paul Always, it's, I always get really crazy about that. He unleashes into this. It's almost like a song. Sometimes he sort of just breaks out in this song, you know. For I consider that what we, the suffering that we go through, is nothing compared to what will be revealed to us. And then he describes the resurrection and the restoration of the universe. Um, that to me. That's Jerzak in a nutshell. So when we're talking about suffering and we're talking about um, um, what it is to have to deal with evil, mm-hmm. you know, you, you mentioned Job and Job's friends. I, I, I can't tell you. In fact, most theodicies, you know, these arguments that we make for how can God be good and all this evil happens, they almost all are the same answers that Job, Job's friends give, Um, you know, well, you probably deserve it. God's got some plan for this, you know, and, and we can't understand God. Those are all the the same arguments that his friends give. And it's a way of dismissing what's evil and saying that it's not evil. And then calling the victim really is probably the evil one. Whenever powerful people do evil and then you call it out, there's a tendency for good people and people on the podcast can't see me doing quotes with my fingers for good people to say, Oh, well, you know, there's probably some really good justification for all of that. No evil is evil. I'm on a, I'm on a monologue right now. So don't well, interrupt me. The, the, uh, a couple of points that, you know, the, the, the thing that hurts, you know, uh, is, you know, you can talk about a theodicy in a kind of abstract academic sense. But, of course, when evil happens to you and then people want to do a theodicy to you personally mm-hmm. and say, oh, well, let me, you know, let me explain that this is all part of God's plan. That's when you understand that this sort of theodicy, which would create a really closed system, a closed universe, in which all of the explanation is available to us because it functions much like a law. That is, it's the it's an economy that is a closed economy. Job got, you know, he got uh, hurt and sick, and because God is punishing. Him. Okay, well, that's what you do when somebody experiences evil. You imagine that there's an, a readily available explanation, and in doing so, it's not a real world acknowledgement 
of the profound radical nature of evil that this thing is a reality that has reached out and grabbed you by the throat and people then are not in some in some way they're not willing to acknowledge that reality i think that's the problem with the friends of job that this which many think is the earliest book in the bible gets a handle then on an anti what i would consider an anti-theology it's not an explanation but what job has hoped for is that god in fact will in some way, when I am in the flesh, you know, this is chapter 19, that I will, my redeemer, my gowl, you know, I'll see face to face in this body, and my justifier will be my redeemer or something. You know, that he's, he's, he, it's a messianic aspect that then is not an explanation, but then that brings us to the cross of Christ, that instead of a, 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 a theodicy, we have God taking on evil. Uh, and giving us a real-world solution to it. Right. Basically. Yeah, and that's important about Job. And and um, what I used to teach when I taught Old Testament, I used to really blow my students away when I say, you know, I'm not sure that it's a really important discussion to have about Job, about whether or not this is a real story and when it happened and who it happened to. I personally think it's a story uh, about a, to make a point. And the point, you know, really ends up at the end of the book. And the point is that Job does not get resolution on why this happened to him. Um, In fact, you know, at the beginning of the book, there really isn't any resolution either. It's a really horrible story if you think about it. Satan wants to prove that uh, there are some – that people can be broken. And so God says, okay, uh, that's not a very nice picture of God either. To me, it comes across – it comes across as a uh, as a hypothetical in the first place, but at the end of the book, what is Job's conclusion? I, I always thought I would read this book, and I would think, you know, God really, in my opinion, when jo- when God answers Job's questions, Job keeps asking. His friends come up with these silly answers. Job says that doesn't resolve my problem. Um, and the other friend comes up with an even worse answer, and Job says, you know, that's a terrible answer. That doesn't resolve my problem over and over and over. And he's got three friends, and then there's a fourth friend, not quite as bad as the other three, and he's still pretty bad. And then all of a sudden you get this great big long several-chapter monologue from God, and it's just God asking question after question. So where were you? Do you understand the stars? Do you understand the universe? Do you understand why the animals work the way they do? Do you understand weather systems? Do you understand uh, the way the clouds work? Do you understand how rain happens? What what do you really understand? And on the surface, it sounds like God's saying, you know, what do you know? You're just a little person. What does it matter? What is it Job concludes? You know what? I'm never going to understand this. And to me, that, that's, a, that's an important lesson of when it comes to trying to answer the problem of suffering. Why does this happen? I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll never know. It does happen. But I used to tell my students, here's the solution. The problem of evil is not resolved in some easy answer that lets us dismiss it and walk away from it and make us feel better about it. The problem of evil is resolved on the cross because on the cross, and this is, again, Terzak's wording, God identifies with the very same suffering that we do. So there's this moment 
And Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what I was taught my whole life is, you know, this is, and here I've got my arms spread wide open like people on the podcast can actually hear me <laughs> do this. Here's Jesus on the cross, and he's asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what is it that I've always been told? Well, that was the moment. We used to sing songs about it. Um, what's that hymn? That the Father turns his face away. Oh. As, yeah. God turns his face away from uh. the suffering of Jesus. He, that's when all your sin got placed on him. And you know God can't look at sin, which is a load. And, and he, he, he saw Jesus, and he had to turn his face away from him. And, oh, God, why have you forsaken me? No, 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 no. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, it literally says, God does not turn his face away from the suffering of the afflicted one. What is Jesus saying? If Jesus is, God doesn't turn his face away from Jesus. Jesus is God. He's, that's God on the cross. It's not God killing Jesus. It's humans killing God. And what is God doing? But I identifying with the same question we ask when we're in the middle of this. My God, where are you? Well, at the very same time that Jesus is asking that question, he's answering the question, where is God? He is on the cross with us. Where is God when it hurts? Where is God when you got fired? Where is God when I got driven away from somebody? Where is God when somebody got beaten up on a plane? Where is God when a bunch of kids got gassed on the other side of the world? God is there getting gassed with them. He is there getting beaten up with them. God is on the cross with us, calling us, come with me. I have the solution to all this. That's why Brad Jerzak's chapter in his book, um, his book, A More Christ-Like God, <laughs> forgive me, I'll say God is good, but stuff happens. It's uh, that that is, uh, the, the cross is the suffering, the resolution that is the resurrection of Christ. Let me make it a little more disturbing. I don't know that it could be anymore, but that is going along with what you're saying. And that is that I think what happens in a theodicy we imagine that we, you know, we, even even in a good theodicy, maybe we say, well, we can't explain this. But we imagine that there is an explanation, that maybe if we could come and God could tell us a story, you know, maybe when we go to heaven, he'll say, well, let me run this down for you. Yeah. And what I think you're saying is, no, not even God has a story in which evil is makes sense or is a necessary part of the story. What he does in the cross of Christ does not give us an explanation, but is in fact take evil seriously enough to die on a cross and uh, does not dismiss it as something, uh, you know, oh, well, this is, this is all part of my plan in that right. sense. What's, uh, what's Yeah, I think that has a lot. That is... That is entirely uh, that encapsulates the whole thing. That it is, 
if you look at it this way, you know, um, you, we run down those Old Testament, the, the atonement sacrifice this way, that in the penal substitutionary model, uh, Jesus dies because God has to punish. Well, until Jesus died, how did he resolve that? Well, animals kept getting killed every year. Now, what happens in that in that sacrifice is, uh, you know, your high priest has to make some kind of atonement for himself before he can even go into the Ark of the Covenant. And then he sacrifices this animal and takes this hyssop uh, wad of grass um, that he dips in water and blood, and he sprinkles it on the people. Then what does he do? He takes that blood in and sprinkles it on the ark. Now, the ark is a symbol of the presence of God, the throne of God, the angels on the top of it. Anytime you see these pictures of the throne of God, there are these descriptions. There's angels, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You get that in Isaiah. I think you see it in Ezekiel. I think you definitely see it in Revelation. What is what is is that a symbol of the presence of God? So what does it mean that that same blood from that dead animal is sprinkled on the people that then gets sprinkled on the ark? Well, it depends on what that sacrifice means. If that sacrifice is, all right, you know what, God has to punish somebody, and so somebody's got to bite it. So we'll take a bull, and he stands in for you. Uh, you know, it's the scapegoat theory, the scapegoat idea. Somebody's got to die. Um, well, that doesn't sound like God. That doesn't sound like Jesus, for sure. Well, when you read Hebrews, um, I think Hebrews uh, 10 really gets at it, that, you know, the writer Hebrews quotes the prophets and says, you know, God never needed those sacrifices. And this is important. I think the, 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 the prophets say this over and over. Because once you think about it that way, that God needs a sacrifice, so we can do whatever we want and give God a sacrifice, and that doesn't that he's happy. We're happy. Everybody's happy. But over and over again, what happens is that they do that, and the prophets come back and say, you know, this isn't about satisfying God. That's not the point of the sacrifice. The sacrifice wasn't about that God needed something killed. If you think that's what it was, you're all you're all wet. What does Hebrews then say? That those sacrifices were a yearly reminder of sin. That animal's not dying because God needs him to. That animal's dying because we need him to, because that tells us that animal's death is a picture of what our sin does. It causes death. So who's culpable? We are. That's why the blood gets sprinkled on us. Who else does it get sprinkled on? It affects God himself. So to me, when you look at it that way, that even in the early atonement sacrifice, the picture is a God who's being um, who's being identified with in our sin. He is also affected. By what is happening here? Mm-hmm. Let me let me. Uh, I don't know that this is an alternative. I think it depends on what you're thinking. You know, if you think of the background to all of the sacrificial system, it's uh, Abraham taking Isaac up Mount Moriah. And of course, this is the big conundrum of you know, wow, what is this whole thing about? If you read this story as being about death 
Well, you're going to miss the fact. No, actually, what Isaac is representative of and what Abraham's ultimately a type of God here, and Isaac is a type of Christ, that it's a picture of the inner Trinitarian economy. And the the point, of course, is pointing to the self-given, kenotic love of Christ that is represented then in you know, a shadowing in uh, Abraham. And then the sacrificial system is a kind of repetition or reminder, as the writer of Hebrews says, of this event and its real-world uh, happening that will come about in Christ. So once you read the sacrifices, and especially the, you know, the goat sacrifice, uh, that the the point of the sacrifice is that sin is in fact uh, uh, a failure then to enter into God's presence. It's alienation. It has to do with death. But the question is, does the goat sacrifice have so much to do? Uh, in other words, the, 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 the point is, here is a life dedicated to God. And that uh, the, the point was never an imitation of pagan sacrifices. And in this, I would you know, make a departure from a major art. He just lumps the, or at one point he did. I think he may have, in fact, corrected himself. But he just sees the Old Testament sacrifices as on a continuum of pagan sacrifices. But I think from the beginning, Judaism was a departure from yeah. a pagan understanding because a pagan understanding is always this closed economy in which you would continually need, you know, you really do need, as the writer of Hebrews says, the, you know, the ongoing sacrifice because that's the nature of the economy. Well, the, the picture, of course, is, is that uh, the universe for the Jews is not a closed system, but it's one that God himself can break into. And that, I think, is, you know, in, I mean, that, that's definitive of who they are. Well, I think all of the Jewish tradition, um, when, you know, this, I think, goes all the way back to the creation narrative. Um, how much of of the Jewish tradition that we we take with us from Pentateuch and mm-hmm. from the books of history ends up looking, and so uh, a, a lot of liberal criticism has said, "Well, it's just you know, like Rene Girard said, it's just a uh, well, they're just taking pagan stuff and, and mm-hmm. running with it themselves." More no, more. what if what if it's uh, what if it's a critique of that? Mm-hmm. Um, that, and you know, I think this is what John Walton's doing in the Lost World Genesis One is saying, yeah, I mean, he borrows that language, but it's actually not the same. Genesis One is is well, first of all, it's not science. Um, what Genesis One is is taking this pagan mythology and saying, no, really, what's happening is this. This is God's purpose for the universe. Mm-hmm. It's anti myth. Uh, yeah. It's anti-myth. It's a critique. It's uh, yeah. It's a, It's completely turning it upside down. Let me ask you a, a big question in regard to Jerzak, and maybe it's not an important question, but uh, to get us a, a grounding, you know, that in uh, Irenaeus and early church fathers, there would be the idea of uh, re- recapitulation. What Jerzak sounds like a lot is this identity. I mean, this is Romans 5, actually, that 
you know, the first There's a lot data. of parallel with Romans, yeah. And so recapitulation is the way the early church fathers describes it. That, and it is, it sounds a lot like what you're describing as identification. Help me with the question there. What's the, is it, is it, I mean, I, I'm wondering, isn't, isn't this just building upon an idea uh, that you find in Irenaeus, in which, you know, the, the unique thing about Irenaeus is that his, his understanding, and I think this is taken up uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, is that, that, again, the reason Christ died is to, you know, it is the, the, to defeat sin and evil. And there is a very specific understanding of the nature of evil. The Irenaeus describes it as deception, that it is a deception uh, that people are deluded by sin, and Christ then exposes that deception. And so, you know, I think I think that either of those cases, you know, either recapitulation or identification, I think people may not fully appreciate that if they've not fully appreciated the problem of sin and of evil. Yeah, if I had to, you know, state a major difference between some of what you and John Toddy have talked about when it comes to uh, atonement. And what some of your other material on um, on uh, Christus Victor, probably what Christus Victor has going for it over and against Jerzak's atonement uh, identification, and and I you know part of my thinking about atonement is that atonement models are models you know they mm. they describe some piece of it. I think Jerzak has a very important voice. His idea about identification is a very important voice, and probably. His, probably does very much mirror what you're talking about with Irenaeus. Um, but it, I think one of the things that may lack that Christus Victor provides a little bit more definition on is a fuller understanding of what we mean when we talk about evil. For Jerzak, and, and, and it's been a while since I've read him, so I, I could be, I could be uh, oversimplifying him, but for Jerzak, what Jerzak really deals with is violence. And I, I personally, I think that you can sum up all evil as, as a type of violence. Mm-hmm. You know, every evil that happens is a violence that happens, mm-hmm. whether it's a violence against self, against God, against my neighbor, um, or all of them, or just you know two of them. Um, that all sin is a kind of violence, and so nonviolent identification is his theme. Not you know what is. What is the cross but God's, uh, he, the way he says, saying no mm-hmm. to violence is, you know, it's not God participating in violence, but saying no to violence. I won't participate, a refusal to participate in violence. Mm-hmm. Um, such that yeah. I've, I've had good friends that, you know, I, when I have said, you know, so, you know, Jesus has forbidden us to pick up the sword. Um, Jesus has forbidden us. Um, Jesus has forbidden us to do violence. And, well, I don't think that's what he meant. I think he died for a different reason than mm-hmm. not fighting against violence. And, no, he died for the reason of not mm-hmm. responding to violence with violence, to not do evil but to do good in the face of evil. The world says that's a good way to get killed. God says, yeah, 
You're right. It is a good way to get killed. But it just so happens I raise people from the dead. Right. Which, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that you're saying is that uh, in uh, not participating in violence is already a kind of identification of the problem, the equation of the sin and violence. And I, this, you know, again, people may be confused by the term violence. This is where I think some familiarity with postmodernity is helpful because actually this is where Derrida, you know, his whole thing about difference is, is identifying identity through difference is violence. This is a thing that even David Bentley Hart, you know, has, has recognized uh, is the, the sort of function of postmodernity is that people have converged on this understanding of the pervasiveness and depth of violence. Well, once you understand that, that violence is simply dividedness, violence is, you know, this thing that's Roman 7, dividedness against the self, alienation from God. And, and that's, the, that's another way of describing identity through difference in Derrida. Uh, and I'm, Derrida, of course, is just doing Heidegger and Hegel and is a kind of himself a summation. Uh, and what he would say, well, there is no justice, but we need to be continually in pursuit of justice. Because I don't think he has the, the means outside of Revelation, outside of the New Testament. In other words, here's somebody who's recognized the problem, the pervasiveness of the problem, and said this thing is inescapable. In a sense, we almost need that as Christians <clears throat> to recognize how big the problem is, to understand what it is that Christ has done. Well, and also to place, uh, 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 you know, it, it's tempting to always go back to where the blame is, but to place the blame where it is. Um, the temptation, the, the, the popular atonement theories have all placed the blame for where the violence comes from back on God. Well, it's God. God is the one that's got to punish. God is the one that can't be around sin. God is the reason so that Jesus doesn't come to solve our sin problem. Jesus comes to solve our God problem. Uh, so God is the one that can't be around sin. Well, no, no, no. The, the image in the garden says that's not true. And the story of the fall in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and now they've sinned, it's God that's moving toward them. It's Adam and Eve hiding behind a bush, covering themselves up, saying, get away, get away. What is it Paul says in Ephesians? He doesn't say, oh, yeah, God's been hostile against you because of your sin. He says, no, you are hostile in your minds because of your sin. The, the violence, God is the one who has love and, and, has, and has peace and has relationship. It is our, our decision to try to, and I think, again, I always run back to Bonhoeffer when I, to fill in my gaps for me. Um, it's God, it is uh, when we're trying to put ourselves in that position that we are, the violence comes completely on our side. Um, that's where the brokenness is. That's it, and it, again, breaks us within ourselves it breaks our relationships with one another it breaks our relationships with the universe itself with the natural world mm -hmm. 
so that everything's a power game. Everything's about power and about control. When we are doing a theodicy, what are we trying to maintain? The sense that we have power over the, the pain that we're in. Mm-hmm. That we still are, we're trying to maintain right. that image that we are still the ones in control. Or in well, this, this happens because, you know, this and that, and, and we know why. We really ultimately have control over this. You know, this happened, and it does happen to people, and, and now we know better. Um, so, you know, don't feel bad about this. You can't tell a person who just lost a child. Don't feel bad about this. God had a plan for this. We know why this happened. It's, it's a lie. And maybe this gets at the, there's a discussion, and sometimes I, I think the seriousness of the discussion is lost between, uh, you know, they're actually all atheists, but they're, they're proposing the idea that was originally there in Kant of radical evil. And I think you almost have to engage the conversation because what they're saying is what Kant himself withdrew from, and that is the, the nature of the reality of evil. Uh, what happens in a traditional you know, Augustinian understanding of evil is to say that evil is ultimately simply nothingness or a parasite on the good. Um, you know, this is Bart in, in conjunction. You know, Bart wants to take this a step further and gives evil a seriousness. But then Bart, I think, almost goes back to saying, well, evil is that thing that is a kind of negative force that, in fact, ultimately gets its source from God's, you know, own being. It's almost, he almost ends up back in Manichaeanism when he begins to talk about nothingness. Uh, And so, you know, the very idea of evil being nothing, that may, and, you know, most of us, when we encounter evil people, they don't seem disempowered. They seem empowered. They right. seem, uh, I mean, I, I think that's why we all like watching evil and violent movies because there's a certain satisfaction in seeing people wield power in this kind of seemingly direct fashion. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think we almost need to acknowledge certainly at an ontological in an ontological sense, we have to, to say that, yes, that we don't live in a, you know, a Gnostic universe or a dualism in which evil has a ground of being on the order of God. And yet there is an uh, evil is a reality in the human sphere, so much so that God has to deal with it in, in the seriousness of the incarnation of Christ. Right. What if, yeah, see, it seems like we're always trying and you and I, when I first met you, you were wrestling with the idea of radical evil. And by the time I finally figured out what you were talking about and, and said, you know, I think I agree with that. You started saying, you know, I don't know if I do anymore. <laughs> it was, it was one of the most frustrating. <laughs> it was, well, it was not fun anymore. If you were going to agree with me. <laughs> it was so frustrating. But well, I, I, think- I I think I understand where where the the trouble is. Well, we don't want to say that. Well, evil is really just the absence of good. Okay. It's really just, darkness, just the absence of light. That's yeah, a really simple, blase kind of answer. Okay. Um, well, on the other hand, we don't want to say that there's two 
there's two ultimate powers, this sort of yin and yang thing where you've got a totally evil deity. Um, and this is, you know, part of, I used to quote that U2 song. That, and one of the things I like about it is that, I mean, there's a lot to it, but um, I don't believe the devil. I don't believe his book, but the truth is not the same without the lies he made up. In other words, we kind of have to have the devil around to make God who he is. Well, no, that's, we don't want to say that, you know, that these two things are necessary. But at the same time, you know, what if evil is a deterioration of created order? That here is, here is, uh, we are the image of God. We are like God in some way. Uh-huh. You know, we can go on a whole other podcast for hours and hours trying to talk about what that means. But let's just say it like that: we are like God. It doesn't mean we are the absence of God. We are like God, but we are also not equal to God. Well, when we're fallen, when we're deteriorated, when we're not doing what it is we are created for, Uh that's evil. It is real. It is a real, live, tangible thing. It's not just the absence of good. That there is a power, and this is what I think Bart was trying to get at, that, that I like in what he's doing. And and I think this is what Paul is doing in Romans 7. That is, that there is an absence that is Trinitarian within us. And that absence is the power of God negated. That is, is, God's presence is refused and negated in the dynamic of, you know, what Paul is describing as the eye, the law, the body of death that constitutes this thing uh, that is, you know, he cries out, who will rescue me? Um, so that you can...